the story of Saul, uh, it completes in some ways, or is a transition between the story that's told in the book of Judges uh, and David. And we're going to examine a way that that, uh, that happens. Well, one of the, the things that we talked about last week, before we get into this little, little chunk of scripture that I want to talk about, was uh, the idea um, of uh, biblical kingship, right? We went all the way back to Deuteronomy, and we read this passage where it describes what the king does. Uh, and what we found in that passage uh, was that the, the king, as, as uh, considered or laid out in the Mosaic law, his job wasn't to accumulate economic wealth or horses or uh, economic wealth or gold, right? Talks about that. He wasn't to gather up horses for his army uh, and he wasn't to, to seek out alliances or political strength by, by going to other nations and, and uh, marrying into their royal families. Wasn't, he wasn't to do that. Uh, and instead, uh, what he was to do uh, was to uh, make a copy of the Torah uh, read the Torah every day and live out the Torah in his life, live out the law, God's law. He was supposed to be an example to the people of how to do that uh, and to meditate on it day and night all the time. And I, I suggested last week and I said, if, if you're an, uh, an ancient person living in that world and you read that instruction for a king, you would think, that's crazy. Like, what, what is even the point? of having a king, if all they're going to do is read a book and then talk about it to the people. What, they're, what a king is for is to make his, his, uh, his kingdom wealthier and uh, stronger and more politically connected. That's the idea of kingship. Uh, and it, it made me think a little bit uh, of, um, well, not a little bit, a lot, uh, of uh, Jesus's teaching in the New Testament, right? He's continually talking about the kingdom of heaven, right? That's, that's his theme uh, many times, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And usually it's kingdom of heaven. Or the, where he says the kingdom of heaven is like, and then he'll launch into something that the kingdom of heaven is like. And he does that repeatedly all the time. Um, it, there, uh, so there's a, a scholar, Jonathan Pennington, who I, uh, he teaches at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and I, I enjoy his work. Uh, and he wrote a, a very, very good uh, book called uh, "It's uh, The Kingdom of Heaven and the Gospel of Matthew. And he talks about how throughout Scripture you have these, this big theme of the kingdom of heaven and the kingdoms of the world, right? And the kingdoms of the world have a way of doing things. And the kingdom of heaven has an unexpected way of doing things. And that's, that's the way God wants them done, right? He wants us to live in peace and harmony with one another in community. Uh, he wants us to esteem each other more highly than ourselves. Go and read uh, the Sermon on the Mount if you get a chance. It talks about what a citizen of the kingdom of heaven looks like. Uh, and it says uh, they're poor and destitute uh, and uh, persecuted. And it goes on and on and on. Um, and it, it always makes me think of this story, and I, I apologize if you guys have heard this before. Many of you who are in my class probably have, but um, Alexander the Great uh, on his deathbed, he's probably the greatest general who ever lived. Uh, by the time he was 35, he had conquered the entire known world. Uh, he, he reached the shores of India. 
uh, which he thought was, was the end. He thought that was the ocean that ended the world. And he sat on a rock uh, and his, his men approached him and he started to cry. And they said, what's wrong? Kyrios, uh, Lord, what's wrong? And he said, um, I'm, I'm weeping because the gods only made one world for me to conquer, right? He, he, wanted, he always wanted more. Uh, and so he, he died perhaps 100 years uh, before Christ at the age of 36. And on his deathbed, uh, the four generals uh, who had served him most of their careers, uh, they, they stood over his deathbed and they said, uh, who will rule after you? He was dying uh, of dysentery or the flu, we don't know which, but uh, they said, will it be your son, who at that time was a month old, uh, or will it be your brother, uh, who was um, pr- probably had a developmental disability um, based on the, the literature? They said, who, who will rule? And he said, whichever of you is strongest. And that's the way of the kingdoms of the world, right? Whoever is strongest will rule. That's not the way that the kingdom of heaven is built, Amen. right? The kingdom, thank goodness, uh, we'd all be in trouble. The kingdom of heaven is an invasion from the future, <laughs> right? We're told over and over and over again that at the end of time, right, uh, uh, Ezekiel says, justice will roll down like waters and everything sad will come untrue, right? He, that's, that's the promise uh, of, of, of the coming kingdom. But what Jesus says is, um, it's, Following him, the way, Christianity, is not primarily about uh, being a good person and then going to heaven when you die. Y- yes, there is a heaven. Yes, you will go there. It's about bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth in your thoughts, in your word, in your deed, in your action, in everything that you do. And you say, well, what's this have to do with the story of Saul? God's trying to show them there's a way that the world works and you're wanting, to, you're wanting to work in that way, right? They say, we want a king like all the other nations. That's, no, you don't. God's saying, I'll show you, I'll give you one and you'll see what happens. So, sorry, that was a bit of a, 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 bit of a digression, but um, I think it's a very important concept to grasp as we go through this. Like, why does Saul fail? He doesn't have to. He fails because he thinks like the world. He thinks that the strongest should rule. So he should be stronger. So let's, let's head back to Judges chapter 19. This is probably the saddest chapter in all the Bible. It says, And it came to pass in those days, when there was no king in Israel, that there was a certain Levite sojourning on the side of Mount Ephraim, who took to him a concubine out of Bethlehem, Judah. Remember Bethlehem, Judah. And his concubine played the whore against him and went away from him unto her father's house to Bethlehem, Judah, and was there four whole months. And her husband arose and went after her to speak friendly unto her and to bring her again, having his servant with him and a couple of asses. And she brought him into her father's house. And when the father of the damsel saw him, he rejoiced to meet him. And his father-in-law, the damsel's father, retained him, and he abode with him three days. So they did eat and drink and lodge there. 
And it came to pass on the fourth day when they arose early in the morning that he rose up to depart. And the damsel's father said unto his son-in-law, Comfort thine heart with a morsel of bread and afterward go your way. They sat down and did eat and drink both of them together. For the damsel's father had said unto the man, Be content, I pray thee, and tarry all night and let thine heart be merry. And when the man rose up to depart, his father-in-law urged him. Therefore he lodged there again. Uh, And he arose early in the morning on the fifth day to depart. And the damsel's father said, Comfort thine heart, I pray thee. And they tarried until afternoon, and they did eat both of them. And when the man rose up to depart, he and his concubine and his servant, his father-in-law, the damsel's father, said unto him, Behold now, the day draweth toward evening. I pray you, tarry all night. Behold, the day groweth to an end. Lodge here, that thine heart may be merry. And tomorrow get you early on your way, that thou mayest go home. And the man would not tarry that night, and he rose up and departed, and came over against Jebus, which is Jerusalem. And there were with him two asses saddled, his concubine also was with him. And when, and when they were by Jebus, the day was far spent, and the servant said unto his master, Come, I pray thee, and let us turn into this city of the Jebusites and lodge in it. And his master said unto him, We will not turn aside hither into the city of a stranger, that is not of the children of Israel. So at this time, Jerusalem is occupied by these Jebusites. They're not, they're not Jews. They're not Israelites. And he's like, well, I'm not going to lodge with these dirty Gentile people. I'm going to keep going. And he said unto his servant, come and let us draw near to one of these places to lodge all night. In Gibeah or in Ramah? Where does Samuel live? Because we talked about that last week. He lives in Ramah. That's where Samuel lives. Samuel the prophet. Remember that, it's important. Uh, and remember the word, remember the name Gibeah, the name of that city. And they passed on and went their way, and the sun went down upon them uh, when they were by Gibeah, which belongeth to Benjamin. Remember, that city belongs to the tribe of Benjamin. And they turned aside hither to go in and to lodge in Gibeah. And when he went in, he sat him down in the street of the city, for there was no man that took them into his house to lodging. So I'm not, we're not going to read the rest of the story, but something awful happens in Gibeah, um, and it ends up with the, uh, the, the Levite's concubine being shoved out of a door. It's a repeat of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. He's shoved out of a door, and, or she's shoved out of a door and abused all night and murdered. Uh, and it's an outrage. It's, it's heard throughout all of Israel. Uh, the Levite makes it known. Uh, and then in, uh, in chapter 21 or I'm sorry, chapter 20 and 21, uh, the rest of the tribes of Israel decide we need to wipe out the tribe of, of Benjamin because of what happened here, and they do it. They, they, uh, they destroy uh, the, not all of the men, but many of the men, uh, women, and children. They kill them all, and they, and they swear an oath. They say no one from our families will ever marry anyone from Benjamin. Okay? So let's go to chapter 21, which we're not going to read in its, completely, but um, in chapter 21, verse 1, it says, Now the men of Israel had sworn in Mizpah, saying, There shall not any of us give his daughter unto Benjamin to wife. And the people came to the house of God and abode there till even before, till even before God and lifted up their voices and wept sore. And said, O Lord God of Israel, why has this come to pass in Israel that there should be today one tribe lacking in Israel? And Notice how, how blind they are during this period of time, right? They made a deliberate decision to wipe this tribe out, and then they say, God, why did you wipe this tribe out? It's because you killed them. 
right? You didn't have to do that. <laughs> like you, you could have said, you know what? This killing all of them is a bad idea. Um, but they didn't do that. Uh, and then in verse four, it says, and it came to pass on the morrow that the people rose early and built there an altar and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the children of Israel said, who is there among all the tribes of Israel that came not up with the congregation unto the Lord? For they had made a great oath concerning him that came not uh, up to the Lord to Mizpah, saying, he shall surely be put to death. So that anybody who didn't fight against the tribe of Benjamin would be put to death, they say. And anybody... And nobody can let their, their daughters marry into the tribe of Benjamin. But they're like, did anybody not come up? That's kind of the question. Uh, and they figure out that this family uh, from Jabesh Gilead did not come up. Um, and I, I won't get into the rest of it, but what, what they do is they abduct all of the women from this, this tribe uh, in Jabesh Gilead and they take them and they... they Make, they compel them to marry the, the remaining Benjamites uh, so that, that the tribe of Benjamin didn't, doesn't die out. Uh, and it ends with that refrain in verse 25, in those days there was no king in Israel and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Uh, no duh, right? Like the, this story is, is super depressing. Um, so let's go to 1 Samuel and we're gonna get into... Uh, where we left off with, um, with our friend Saul. So remember, they came to Samuel, uh, who's portrayed in the first eight chapters of, or the first seven chapters of 1 Samuel as being almost a perfect judge. He, he basically corrects all of the problems that were present uh, throughout that period of the judges. And it, th- it looks like things are finally going right. And they approach him and they say, we want a king. We want to have a king uh, to rule over us. Um, and he, uh, Samuel's a little offended, right? He's like, what, you know, am I chopped liver? Am I not doing a good job? And they say, no, we want a king like all the other nations have. Um, and he goes to God and he's like, I don't know what to do. He's kind of complaining to God. And God says, go ahead and do it. Go ahead and appoint a king. I'll show you a person to be their king. They, they haven't just rejected you. They've also rejected me, Right? So, uh, verse 9, and, and he also tells, he says to Samuel, go tell them the king's going to take away their kids and, <laughs> and their sons and their daughters and make them serve him. He's going to take away their land. He's going to take away everything uh, and ask them if they still want a king. And they said, yeah, we still want a king. Uh, so, chapter 9, verse 1. Now, there was a man of Benjamin. That's suggestive, isn't it? whose name was Kish, the son of Abel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becherah, the son of Aphiah, a Benjamite, a mighty man of power. So Kish is Saul's dad, and he is, he's rich. Um, it, the word that, that's used here for mighty man means he's, he's got a lot of wealth, uh, like in terms of, of economic status. It says, and he had a son whose name was Saul, a choice young man and a goodly. Goodly means he was handsome. Uh, and there was not among the children of Israel a goodlier person than he. From his shoulders and upward, he was higher than any of the people. Um, when the Bible tells you, telling you things in the Bible was expensive and difficult because in the ancient world, it was expensive and difficult to write anything down. Uh, and so 
the details matter. When they tell you that he was tall, um, it's meaningful. Why is it meaningful? Because that's the only unique thing about him. Um, that's the only impressive thing about Saul is that he was tall and handsome. Um, and the asses of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. And Kish said to Saul, his son, take now one of the servants with thee and arise. Go seek the asses. And he passed through Mount Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalisha, and they found them not. Then they passed through the land of Shalim, and there they were not. And he passed through the land of the Benjamites, but they found them not. And they, when they were come to the land of Zuth, Saul said to his servant that was with him, come and let us return, lest my father leave caring for the asses and take thought for us. So um, it's not clear in our cultural context, but to an Israelite, um, they would have said, this guy doesn't seem super competent. If you're reading, if you're reading this, you're like, oh, he's a, he's a Benjamite. And uh, eight chapters before, I read about how the Benjamites almost got wiped out and, and destroyed uh, because they did this hugely immoral thing. Um, and uh, also... Uh, this guy doesn't, doesn't seem like he knows what he's doing. He's just searching all over the place for these donkeys and he doesn't find them. Uh, verse six, and he said unto him, he being Saul's servant, behold now, there is in this city a man of God and he is an honorable man. All that he saith cometh surely to pass. Now let us go thither, peradventure he can show us our way that we should go. Then said Saul to his servant, but behold, if we go, what shall we bring the man? For the bread is spent in our vessels, and there is not a present to bring to the man of God. What have we? So a couple things here. One, uh, we know that, uh, we're going to find out in a few minutes, that Saul is from the city of Gibeah, right? Which is, we just read about Gibeah, about this awful thing that happened at Gibeah. Um, and Samuel lives in Ramah, which is close to the city of Gibeah. Right? It, it has to be, because the choice that the, the, that the Levite had in, back in Judges was, we're near Jerusalem, we can spend the night in Gibeah, or we can spend the night in Ramah, which suggests that they're very close to one another. Right? Now, if I showed you a map, you would see it's like maybe 10 miles away from, like, from each other. Um, Saul doesn't know who Samuel is. Um, Samuel's the most significant religious and political figure uh, in Israel since Moses at this point. And Saul doesn't know who he is. That would be like living down the street from, I don't know, somebody who used to be, um, I don't know. If you live three streets over from Barack Obama and you didn't realize, you didn't know who Barack Obama was, it suggests that somebody didn't tell you uh, his significance, right? You know, the guy who used to be president lives three streets over. Um, it just, it, it is mind, it would be mind-blowing to an Israelite to read this and think, how, how could he not know who Samuel was and that Samuel lived close? Also notice his assumption is that he needs to pay. So he needs to pay Samuel to get some, I didn't bring anything to pay him with. Well, that, that's not how Samuel works, right? We, we've just spent, Seven chapters reading about how Samuel works. Samuel doesn't take money. It, his sons do, but he, he never takes money for anything. Um, and so there's this kind of spiritual blindness or this uh, assumption about the way that God works that is built into Saul's character. 
uh, and he, do, he just doesn't seem to get it right away. Uh, and the servant answered Saul again and said, Behold, I have here at hand the fourth part of a shekel of silver that I will give to the man of God to tell us our way. Before time in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, thus he spake, Come and let us go to the seer. For he that is now called a prophet was before time called a seer. Um, this is important because everything about Saul's selection is about seeing. Remember last week we talked about this distinction between seeing and taking and listening and believing? Well, Saul is all surface level. He's, he's, all, what are the, he's all sizzle and no steak uh, when, uh, when Samuel goes to see him. He's exactly perfect for what the Israelites want. Right? They want somebody who is like the kings of all the other nations. Uh, and, and there you can be very impressive and have no substance whatsoever. So uh, then said Saul to his servant, well come, or well said, come, let us go. So they went unto the city where the man of God was. And as they went up the hill to the city, they found young maidens going out to draw water and said unto them, is the seer here? And they answered them and said, he is, behold, he is before you. Make haste now, for he, for he came today to the city. For there is a sacrifice of the people today in the high place. As soon as you be come into the city, you shall straightway find him before he go up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat until he come, because he doth bless the sacrifice, and afterwards they eat that be bidden. Now therefore get you up, for about this time you shall find him. And they went up into the city, and when they were come into the city, behold, Samuel came out against them for to go up to the high place. Now the Lord had told Samuel in his ear a day before Saul came, saying, Tomorrow, about this time, I will send thee a man out of the land of Benjamin, and thou shalt anoint him to be captain over my people Israel, that he may save my people out of the hand of the Philistines. For I have looked upon my people, because their, their cry has come unto me. And when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said unto him, Behold the man whom I spake to thee of, this, shall, this same shall reign over my people. Then Saul drew near to Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, I pray thee, where the seer's house is. So he doesn't recognize Samuel, he doesn't know who he is. And Samuel answered Saul and said, I am the seer. Go up before me unto the high place, for you shall eat with me today, and tomorrow I will let thee go, and will tell thee all that is in thine heart. And as for thine asses that were lost three days ago, set not thy mind on them, for they are found. And on whom is all the desire of Israel? Is it not on thee and on, all, and on all thy father's house? And Saul answered and said, Am not I a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel? And my family the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin. Wherefore then speakest thou so to me? Right? He's perfect. He's perfect to be king because he's wholly inadequate. He looks good, but God is selecting him. Right? He's going to give the people what they want. Fine. <laughs> let's, let's see how this works out, he says. So he's going to give them somebody from the tribe of Benjamin, which is despised, uh, and he's going to give them someone from the smallest family in Benjamin, although rich, uh, and he's going to give them somebody from the very city in which the, the moral fabric of Israel started to, uh, started to really unravel. Verse 23, uh, I'm sorry, 22. And Samuel took Saul and his servant and brought them into the parlor and made them bid sit in the chiefest place among them that were bidden, which were about 30 persons. And Samuel said unto the cook, bring the portion which I gave thee, of which I said unto thee, set it by thee. 
And the cook took up the shoulder and that which was upon it and set it before Saul. And Samuel said, Behold, that which is left, set it before thee and eat. For unto this time hath it been kept for thee since I said, I have invited the people. So Saul did eat with Samuel that day. Now what, what he's done is, is taken the choicest part of the meat and he's laid it aside so that Saul can eat it. It's the king's portion of the meat, right? That's, that's the tradition or the idea is that you would set apart what is best and, and that's what the king eats. Uh, at least that, that's how they do it in places where the king is not a Deuteronomy king, right? That's, the, the king gets the first of everything. Uh, and when they were come down from the high place, this is verse 25, from the high place into the city, Samuel communed with Saul upon the top of the house. And they arose early, and it came to pass about the spring of the day that Samuel called Saul to the top of the house, saying, Up, that I may send thee away. And Saul arose, and they went out, both of them, he and Samuel, abroad. And as they were going down to the end of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Bid the servant pass on before us. And he passed on. But stand thou still a while, that I may show thee the word of God. And here, Samuel is going to anoint Saul. Chapter 10, verse 1. Then Samuel took a vial of oil and poured it upon his head and kissed him and said, Is it not because the Lord hath anointed thee to be captain over his inheritance? When thou art departed from me today, then thou shalt find two men by Rachel's sepulcher in the border of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say unto thee, The asses which thou wantest, wentest to seek are found. And lo, thy father hath left the care of the asses and sorroweth for you, saying, What shall I do for my son? Uh, think of how comical that is, right? Um, he's, so the, the normal Near Eastern sort of uh, idea of a king is he's portrayed as a shepherd. What we have here is a shepherd who couldn't find the animals that he'd been sought to look for and in fact seems to have gotten lost himself, uh, right? His, his dad sent him out. Um, I, you know, I think of him as kind of the... Um, He's the kid you, who's going to take over the family business, but he's not so good at it. And he's, his, his heart's just not in it. He's like, eh, you know, maybe, maybe dad wants him to run the, run the car dealership. And he likes cars okay, but, eh, you know, the business isn't so fun. Um, so, verse 3, Then shalt thou go on forward from thence, and thou shalt come to the plain of Tabor, and there shall meet the three men going up to God to Bethel, one carrying three kids, and another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a bottle of wine. And they will salute thee and give thee two loaves of bread, which thou shalt receive of their hands. After that, thou shalt come to the hill of God, where is the garrison of the Philistines. And it shall come to pass, when thou art come hither in the city, that thou shalt meet a company of prophets coming down from the high place with a psaltery and a, and a tabret and a pipe and a harp before them. And they shall prophesy, and the Spirit of the Lord shall come upon thee, and thou shalt prophesy with them, and shall be turned into another man. And let it be, when these signs are come unto thee, that thou do as uh, occasion serve thee, for God is with thee. And thou shalt go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I will come down unto thee to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice sacrifices of peace offerings. Seven days shalt thou tarry till I come to thee, and show thee what thou shalt do. And, and so in the... In the, chapters that, in the chapter that, the rest of the chapter that follows, all of those signs happen. And this is very common in Near Eastern literature when a, a, a king is described as being appointed. 
uh, or elected or uh, like rising to prominence, he's given a series of tasks to do, typically in threes, right? And and typically they involve um, meeting successive groups of people, right? And you can see that here, right, the, the people are more and more important, right? At first, it's just three random guys who are going to tell him, hey, your dad's worried about you, which is kind of lame. But, <laughs> but then the next one, right, there are three people who are going to make an offering. And then finally, there are priests who are singing and, and uh, have these instruments, um, and he's going to prophesy with them. So uh, there are these sort of three feats that Saul is going to perform before he becomes king. Uh, and if we go to um, verse 20, it says, And when Samuel had caused all the tribes of Israel to come near, the tribe of Benjamin was taken. When he had caused the tribe of Benjamin to come near by their families, the family of Matri was taken, so selected. They're, being, uh, they're casting lots, right? Or, or uh, like not dice, but it's basically a gambling method, right? You, it's a method used to select somebody. Uh, and Saul, the son of Kish, was taken, and when they sought him, he could not be found. Uh, the only other time that they select somebody by lot this way is back in Joshua. Anybody remember the story of Achan? Uh, he, they uh, conquered Jericho, and God said, don't take anything from Jericho, and this knucklehead took like uh, gold. I don't know where he was going to spend it, but he took it, and then like a bolt of cloth and a bunch of other stuff and the children of Israel started to get just destroyed by enemies that they thought, or enemies that they really shouldn't have. Uh, and they said, what's wrong? And God says, well, somebody stole something from Jericho. They, they made all of the children of Israel, ca they, they cast lots in just exactly this manner to determine which person had done it. So it's, it's interesting that, that those are the only two times that this, this kind of mechanism is used. Um, so where'd he go? They, they couldn't find him. Well, it says, Therefore they inquired of the Lord further, if the man should yet come thither. And the Lord answered, Behold, he hath hid himself among the stuff. Uh, the, the stuff here is the, like the baggage. Uh, it, it's like the carts or the, the, you know, when you have an encampment and you leave stuff, stuff, you leave baggage or, or supplies someplace. He's just hanging out with the baggage. Uh, He's hiding. Uh, and they ran and fetched him thence. And when he stood among the people, he was higher than any of the people from his shoulders and upward. And Samuel said to all the people, See ye him whom the Lord hath chosen, that there is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted and said, God save the king. Then Samuel told the people the manner of the kingdom and wrote it in a book and laid it up before the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people away, every man to his house. Now, I want you to note that, right? We talked about Deuteronomy, right? We talked about the, the, the kind of king that was to serve uh, Israel under the, the laws that are set forth in Deuteronomy. And his job, right, is to get the Torah, right, is to get a copy of the law from the priests and then to copy it and read it every day. That's his job. It's the only task, the, the, you know, the only set of tasks that he, have, that he has. In verse 25, Samuel made it possible. Samuel made it possible for Saul to do that, right? He, he told the people the manner of the kingdom, 
and he wrote it in a book. He wrote down the law in a book. That, that's what Saul was supposed to look at every day and memorize. Um, I, I think it's interesting. Saul did not have to fail. He did not have to fail. And we're going to talk about this more as we get into uh, week three and four of our study. But he, um, he comes to repeat each and every mistake that the judges made. He, he's the book of Judges made into a person. <laughs> and he fails. He didn't, doesn't have to, though. God creates the conditions where he could succeed. He has the Torah. He has the ability to read it. He has the ability to, to live it out. But he refuses to. And not only does he refuse to, right? because David fails as well, he refuses to accept that he has failed. It, it's really fascinating when you, when you start to talk about his personality and how he reacts to his failure. Uh, and we're going to see that in, in the coming weeks. Verse 26, and we'll finish out this chapter. And Saul also went home to Gibeah, and there went with him a band of men whose hearts God had touched. But the children of Belial, um, I, I think some translations uh, translate this, the some dishonorable fellows or something like that, but the children of Belial said, how shall this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no presents, but he held his peace. Um, so we're not, I won't talk about that too much till we get in the next week, but notice what's happened here, right? You have, uh, I really can't repeat it enough. The Bible is to accept that he has failed. It, it's really fascinating when you, when you start to talk about his personality and how he reacts to his failure. Uh, and we're going to see that in, in the coming weeks. Verse 26, and we'll finish out this chapter. And Saul also went home to Gibeah, details surfacing in your mind, and, and uh, firing off connections in, in a way that will make the, the text live and breathe for you. Um, it, you, may not, you may not have caught ever, right, the idea that Saul is from Gibeah. He's from the very place that we just got out of where everything fell apart and, and nobody, nobody knew what was right or wrong. He's from the tribe of Benjamin, which is almost wiped out for having committed that, that awful, the, the awful things that are described in that book. Um, so as you read the Bible, be, be, know that what is there is relevant. You may not catch it the first time, but as you go through it, right, as you, as you live and breathe this text, uh, day, day after day after day, uh, these little details will surface and they will, they will make this book alive for you in a way that, that just a surface reading can't make it alive. 